Check it out, well, I'm the master of balance With multiple talents I provide the landscape, baby You provide the challenge I've been broken down and out And look at the sound that I'm drowning out I'm around the town and I'm round about And it's better than the kick in your freaking mouth These words might scare you Make you tremble and double dare you Now we're always learning Always listening and very burning and not checking the resume, two thumbs down is what they say. Drink it up till you're dizzy. Stay away from thin like Lizzie. Touch your trembling chest to look at what Hello, hello. You are back inside the chat room on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are broadcasting live from the University of California campus in Irvine. We're streaming on the web at KUCI.org. We are podcasting every awesome minute of this show. You can check us out at KUCI.org slash talk. Click on podcast, scroll down to the chat room. Every single one of our shows is up there for your listening pleasure. I'm back. I haven't been here for weeks and weeks, and I've, I've missed you, Dana. Two weeks. And Two I weeks. did survive without you. I'm wondering what all these bright lights and pretty buttons are. I don't even know what I'm doing here anymore. Yeah, <laughs> I know. There's, like, buttons and sliders and things. Hopefully, you'll get back into it. I'll, d- I'll be fine. We won't have to go through this trauma of you going on vacation and such for I another year. I won't, I won't do that anymore. Okay, good. So, we are, uh, we're lucky enough to be joined by Samuel Newman. Would you like to go by Sam or Samuel? Uh, Sam will do just Sam fine. Sam is a uh, marriage and family therapist. I'm going to let you introduce yourself because you're probably better at that than better that than I am. That's for sure. And uh, just tell us about your uh, all those pesky credentials. How long you've been doing marriage and family counseling? Um, interesting facts about yourself you'd like to share? Okay, I guess the audience uh, will decide whether it's interesting. Um, this could be my 15 minutes, I suppose, right? <laughs> this is your whole hour. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, I've been um, practicing as a um, licensed marriage and family therapist in private practice since 1989. So what is that? That's um, how many? I, I can't do the math. That's but when I graduated from high school, so that's... Um, 23. That's yes. five years. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's somewhere in the 20s, in the, in the uh, early 20s. And uh, prior to that, I was uh, in the field of human services, um, working as a psychiatric technician, uh, a mental health worker before that. And um, um, so I've been, uh, you know, d- actually doing this kind of work off and on since I was about 21. Damn. And I'm 61 now. So what's that? 40 years. 40 years. Yeah. That's a that's a lot of mental dishealth. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. They, I've suffered from the uh, from the attrition of uh, the mentally uh, unhealthy, and <laughs> and I'm referring mostly to uh, colleagues and staff members. Actually, I was I was actually going to ask you about that because I have heard <laughs> therapists are kind of crazy, you know, and that they go into the profession because they're you know, trying to figure themselves out. I won't make you comment on that for yourself, but... No, you're right, actually, and I I, uh, have no shame or reticence in in, uh, uh, copying to it. Uh, I think that you you have, like, three different uh, 
origins of motivation for, for therapists. One is, of course, to figure oneself out because one is unstable and so forth, uh, or, um, you know, uh, underprivileged, overprivileged, uh, imbalanced, uh, wacko. Um, the other reason uh, is that I think um, being a therapist is, is perceived, and rightly so, as having a degree of social power and professional power and you know people like to uh, feel like they have um, significance over other people's lives they like to feel empowered and the third reason is believe it or not altruism I mean uh, people uh, myself included enjoy uh, being able to help other people now for me and usually it's a combination of those three I'm gonna say that I'm a common more combination of one and three on that one Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm First That's and the pretty third. good, actually. Forget the middle one. Yeah. I like that. So when did you kind of discover that you had a knack for helping people with sexual problems? Sexual problems? Okay. Well, I, I've actually never discovered that yet. Mm. But, uh, <laughs> still. <laughs> no, I, no, I've actually helped couples with, with sexual problems. But uh, uh, usually the sexual problems clear up when, when uh, the... Uh, power struggle problems and the, you know, the personality uh, differences and the uh, conflictual problems clear up, then, then it's a, a, a good foundation for clearing up the sexual stuff. That's, that's relatively simple, you know, kind of like a how-to, you know, instructions. But uh, um, I, I, it's a funny story. Uh, I uh, kicked around in the 60s and the 70s with a lot of different type of work, you know, because um, I was kind of, I guess you would call it like a hippie or a drifter. And one of the jobs that I had was uh, working construction. And uh, they were uh, building custom homes in Laguna Beach and uh, Lake Arrowhead and that sort of thing. And we were sitting at lunch one time, uh, me and all the other workers, and, um, and I tended to uh, talk to people about their uh, relationships and problems while we were sitting around at lunch during the lunch break having a beer or two and um, uh, my foreman my boss said you know Sam you are uh, pretty good at helping people you ought to go into school and become a therapist but you are a lousy carpenter <laughs> so that that that's the moment that I really remember that kind of it kind of galvanized with me that that would be my direction that's funny. So is sex the first thing to go? Is that a good barometer for things going off in a relationship? That, that, that That's where it crops up first because it's the most sort of tangible and physical and... Well, a lot of people um, can't stand each other and, uh, and still have good sex. I mean, that's true. you know, by, by performance measures. But, uh, you know, but, but, but any, any uh, inner subjective or soulful measure, that's probably not true. Um, I, I like to regard sex uh, in the relationship as kind of the, the energy or the engine that drives it, you know. Um, of course, uh, if you have, a, like, for example, I'll use the metaphor of a boat, you have a boat with a good engine, you still need a rudder. <laughs> the uh, boat can go in circles. Yeah. I wonder if... Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does make sense. It does make sense. That's good. I wonder if there are kind of rules you can follow as to when it's time to call you. Because I hear of so many couples who just wait too long. And by the time they get to you, you know, you're either now kind of a divorce coach or you're, you know, 
you're mm-hmm. um, it's just too late I've helped people so. out out of relationships too yeah um, well you know um, it, it, that's a subjective call too you know therapy's not much of a science it's more it's more of an art and a philosophy if if anything if it's to be classified but uh, you know the time to call is uh, when you feel that you could use a third party as a consultant to intervene yeah do most people uh, are the both people in the couple usually there do uh, no it's usually just the wife and then she just drags him (laughs) Uh, I mean are they there willingly or is somebody usually dragged and they're like oh god yeah it's it's the latter I don't know, but I'm not much of a statistician. Um, I think it was Mark Twain that said there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. But uh, I, I think, you know, just from anecdotal, from my own observation, um, most couples come to me through the woman, through the female. I mean, f- let's face it, females are oriented to actually speaking and having a relationship, and men may not be so much and so uh, there's more of a stigma for men in terms of coming to see a therapist you know they they kind of like hey I can fix this and then they go to their toolbox you know right well I can see why I mean you're gonna make them talk about feelings <laughs> come on <laughs> are there some common complaints among these women that kind of get them to where they seek your help yeah well the, the most common complaint is that um, the uh, boyfriend or husband or cohabitative other or whatever um, is, um, you know, not not talking to them, not paying attention to them. Uh, they don't feel that they're valued or attractive uh, or, or they feel, uh, you know, some resentment or hostility towards them. And, uh, you know, w- I think in general women are more committed to trying to uh, work through that sort of stuff. Especially in that environment, because now they have to talk, right? They have you pinned down. You're there <laughs> mm-hmm. to talk. You're not there to have sex, which is probably what the guy wants to do. So you're, you know, you're a captive well, I audience. You <laughs> I wouldn't rule it out, but I mean, un- unfortunately, law and ethics pro- prohibits that. <laughs> <laughs> there Too was bad. a time when that Too used bad. to happen, I think. <laughs> in the 60s. But that's why we have malpractice insurance. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. If it's ever awkward, because it's such an intimate relationship it's a long-term relationship you usually see a therapist for you know a year plus right well that's the ideal as a therapist i would hope so yeah so if you have relationships with the opposite is it ever difficult to sort of keep that you know it's it i guess it's sort of a cliche to have an affair with your therapist but yeah well you know it's easy to form um an attraction to your therapist because here's this person uh, whether male or female, who's coming into your life and, and helping you out. And they generally take on kind of the subliminal or unconscious form of the, uh, the good mother or the good father or the good uncle or whatever. And so it's common for clients, um, uh, you know, and in my case probably opposite sex, to form some uh, attraction uh, to me. But that's just energy that um, you know professional learns how to work with appropriately really yeah (laughs) (laughs) seriously (laughs) (laughs) well i idealistically let's say you know uh, you know um uh, hypothetically i mean that's uh that's that's the uh, the 
what you're supposed to do anyway. Have you ever had to fire a client because you just got too... I've been stalked by clients. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've, had, I've had like one session uh, with... I, not going to mention any names because I can't. You sure. Know, but, sure. Uh, uh, you know, let's say client X who uh, came into my office and um, was, um, you know, didn't, didn't have, was maybe a few uh, french fries short of a happy meal, you know, to begin with. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, took an instant psychotic liking to me and uh, began to have some delusions of, oh, we were meant to be together. I finally met the the man of my dreams and uh, you know then I would try to refer them out and uh, th they didn't want to go see anybody else they felt like I was abandoning them I was getting letters you know weird psychotic letters gifts and so forth and uh, generally uh, she boiled your bunny <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually it was Glenn Close that uh, I'm talking about yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned power struggles mm -hmm. and I find that interesting because I don't know what it is but I have this inkling that women used sex against me at some time like my desire for it became mm -hmm. something that they pretended like they didn't want so they could use it to get something else am I crazy or does that ever happen we still may be crazy but um, it does happen <laughs> um, you know I, I think that um, that actually shifts as you get older when when we're becoming sexual um, in our teens or you know tweens or as we're beginning to become uh, having sexual inclinations, um, you know I think in, at least in most cultures, certainly this one, men feel at a certain disadvantage, you know, and um, and women call the, the shots, you know, because um, women get pregnant and so they they have a lot more stake in it and. Uh, you know, they, they kind of uh, do the red light, green light thing, and, and uh, men are, or boys, uh, uh, are, are basically, they want to have sex all the time. So women uh, begin to recognize this kind of sexual power that they have in their youth, and sometimes beyond, and uh, they more easily work it, and I think that that actually begins to change in midlife. I was going to say, uh, uh, we've talked about this on the show, the, this cliche that men want sex and women have headaches, and <laughs> how I just think that's not entirely true. <laughs> Do you, is, is that a recurring theme in your, in your practice of disgruntled women? It seems like women in their middle age, you know, you kind of hit your sexual peak in your 40s for women when your biological clock is perhaps ticking down and... Um, men are over it they've you know they've peaked at 22 or whenever no they've peaked at around 17 oh 17 <laughs> all right <laughs> i was i was being generous <laughs> okay. but it's a slow it's a slow decline after 17 but uh um what was the question <laughs> if that's sort of a i'm trying to break this myth and now i have a professional uh, that could do it. <laughs> and the myth being the myth being that men are the ones who are hungry for sex and women always have headaches and it's and that the, the power struggle really is men you know that the women used yeah. to be true more i think i don't think it's as true these days as it as it was in my time when i was like uh first becoming a sexual being, you know, in my uh, adolescence, um, I, I think that, uh, that it's, it's not as polarized. I think it's, it's more equalized now. But, uh, 
Yeah, certainly I, I don't think there's any stronger power on Earth, um, maybe besides nuclear power, than, you know, the sexual impulse of a young man. <laughs> Fair enough. I shouldn't <laughs> laugh at my own jokes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you might be right. I, and, I and, uh, but, uh, no, I mean, I think that myth should be broken because um, uh, m many girls and many women uh, have now... Uh, learn through the changes in our society. I mean, the sexual revolution has kind of come and gone, you know, from the 60s and the 70s when, when the lid kind of got blown off the whole scene. And, uh, um, you know, women have discovered uh, that, that, that they enjoy sex and that, and that they want to have sex too. And um, so, you know, I, I see it especially the, the older you, the older that the couple is, it's more equal. I mean, there's I'm, when I'm seeing couples over the age of about 35, 40, I'm actually seeing women who are uh, hungrier for sexual attention than, than men. Thank because you. their testosterone levels dropping down and women's testosterone <laughs> levels increasing. I think it's testosterone. I think that's the little culprit right there. Thank you. I feel so validated. <laughs> I've yeah. been waiting for a year for somebody to come in here and say that on the show. That's great. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you don't have to wait any longer. I don't have to wait anymore. So could you give us some insight into the kinds of power struggles some of these couples have that affect their sex life? Well, the basic power struggle, I mean, I, I, I've, over the years, I, I'm, I, I'm kind of a reductionist, you know, as... Um, Shakespeare said, brevity is the soul of uh, genius, or it might have been wit. But um, most power struggles to me are similar in that um, person A wants person B to be the way that they fantasized person B when they fell in love with them or became infatuated. So what actually happens in infatuation is uh, you see somebody who has certain characteristics that uh, arouse you. Uh, you know the uh, their 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 voice, the uh, their their size, the color of their hair, their perfume, whatever. And from that limited stimulus, you you actually build this um, romantic structure in your own mind, uh, or I call it a template. And so you have these expectations that. Uh, this other, this significant other person is going to be how you imagine them, how you fantasize them. And actually, in the very beginning of the relationship, it plays out that way because people lie and, 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 uh, and misrepresent themselves unknowingly, you know. Uh, there, there's no baggage in the beginning of a relationship. It's a, it's a, it's a you know, it's a, it's a free horizon, you know. There's a no limitations, and so it's most, much of it is infatuation, which is a, a mostly imagination. And so when that begins to wear off in a relationship, that's where the power struggling begins. It begins where, and, and it begins bilaterally, uh, you know, he is trying to shape her into the image that he had, the romantic image, and she's trying to shape him. And that can uh, actually uh, be represented in arguing over, uh, you know, closing the refrigerator door or, you know, um, uh, you know, in, in actually anything. 
but but the, the frustration behind the power struggle, which later becomes sexual, is in people not um, being tolerant to really discover who they are and who the other person is in a kinetic relationship that's evolving. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you're talking about they're not willing to accept their partner for who they really are. Yeah. Uh, s- said more basically exactly because they have an idea of who they, who they thought they want, were yes and that idea is uh, hard sometimes impossible to let go of so actually i'm i work with people who are like di- you know divorcing after 30 years or something you know um and uh you know the last 29 years of the relationship haven't been so good <laughs> and uh you know you, you think maybe they would have gotten the message earlier but it takes that long, and they have all this grief of, uh, you know, I've been with this person for 30 years, and I, you know, and, and I'm never going to be able to, you know, uh, forget them, and I'm in such grief, and, and I'm holding on. And um, it's, it's a delight to them, and it's, it's my work sometimes to point out that they're not actually grieving the person. They are grieving their expectation of the person. That is, that buys you a lot of therapy right They're there. They're grieving the loss yeah. of... That's, a, that's, that's, that's yeah. worth your, the nickel for that therapy is. right there. Right. They're right. grieving the realization that the thing they thought is not what is. Yeah. They're holding on to an object in their mind. Uh, they, they're actually objectifying the other person into, you know, what they want, what they believe they have, and they, they hold on to that with great tenacity and generally, they don't let go. It's generally ripped from their grip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that's, an, that's an interesting term, objectify, because I would, I would imagine most people, when they hear that term, they think in terms of something men do to women. Mm-hmm. But you're saying this is, both sexes do this. Yeah, you know, uh, traditionally, I guess people say, yeah, well, men, men treat women like sex objects. Well, w- women treat men like romantic objects. So, you know, it's... it's it's uh, almost the same thing. It's, it's letting go of, of what you think and uh, acquiescing to what really is. And that's difficult for people. Yeah. yeah. Is there a point in therapy when you can look at the couple and say, in your own mind, this isn't going to work out, and then sort of counsel them in that direction? Or do you just have to go in the direction they want to go? If they're going down with the ship, you counsel them all the way down into the ground. I get that. I get the uh, impression uh, that, oh, I'm not going to be able to work with this one. Or th- this, these people should not be together, usually within about three sessions. Wow. Um, but uh, I like to pride myself on, on somebody who can uh, pull a bad relationships out of the depths of hell and redeem it. <laughs> and actually, that's... That's kind of what I specialize in, is in, in uh, uh, trying to reunify people who have felt stagnant for, for long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Do you ever share with them, you know what, it's time for you guys to pull the plug? Oh, I do, and, and, and generally then they demonize me and go see another therapist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or, or not always, but actually I've been, I've been successful in, in that at, at, at doing that at times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sometimes you just want the answer from your therapist. And it's not sad. I mean, it's not a sad event, really. I mean, if you're with somebody that it, it's not really going to be fulfilling and you're just going to be tearing your hair out, 
uh, trying to get something that's not going to happen, I mean, you're wasting everybody's time, you know, but uh, people are afraid to pull the trigger, and sometimes they call a third person in for that. And are, you of th- are you of the opinion, you know, if you've got kids, you should stick it through and all that? I, I am. I am to an extent. Uh, finish. Finish the question. I'm just wondering if there are swings in in um, philosophy that you know it was the notion in the 80s or the 90s. Mm. You absolutely go down with the ship because it's the best thing for the kids, and now that's changing. <laughs> Doctor <don't> Laura. <laughs> exactly. <Okay>. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, and maybe that's falling out of fashion now, or whatever your thoughts are on that. Um, well, the ideal situation is man meets woman. Man and woman fall in love. Uh, man and woman get married, create a, a good, strong, loving foundation, raise children. Children grow up in this loving home and, uh, you know, launch and become wonderful adults. That's the ideal. Um, that <laughs> rarely happens. Um, so, you know, most of the time it's sort of a continuum between leave it to Beaver and the Manson family. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a continuum there. And um, so um, I, I um, you know, try to um, work with... If people are willing to... You know, it all comes down to if, if a person's willing to set their pride and ego aside long enough to observe what's happening and, uh, and find new... Um, uh, new things out about each other and and themselves there's an old saying that i like to uh it's an old metaphor i think it comes from a greek playwright um you can't put your foot in the same river twice and um you know the river looks the same on the outside but uh, it's always changing you know ecologically and chemi- and chemically it's it's there's all these subtle changes going on and people have a tendency to look at each other and then kind of freeze frame who they think the other person is and who they think they are. And so as an existentially uh, grounded therapist, and by that I mean, you know, that I believe that a person's not determined to behave in any particular way unless they believe they are, uh, that uh, people can discover new resources and new capacities in each other and and they do and that that's a fun that's a lot of fun to be around when that happens you know and then they get wild and crazy and have good sex and um and uh, form new power struggles but <laughs> but but better ones more interesting deeper yeah. ones after yeah, yeah probably yeah, like that um are there misconceptions about, I, I think a lot of people, you said men are scared of counseling because they don't like to open up, but are there misconceptions about counseling and therapy? Because I know a lot of people are reticent to, to make that call. You know, they either think it's the last, you know, the last, last thing, resort. last resort, or, you know, it's scary, or they're going to they're gonna be found out, there's some deep secret they have that's going to be, you know, ferreted out. and, and Right. You know, Right, or it's the Manchurian candidate. They they might be hypnotized and you know, right. forced <laughs> to say things. Forced, say you know, <laughs> when the phone rings, they they take their cl- their clothes off or something. No, no. Um, what was that question again? Uh, what are the what are the biggest misconceptions <laughs> oh, that, that we good. can sort of you know? Yeah, the biggest misconception is that uh, pathological and sick people seek therapy, because the truth is. Healthy people seek therapy, mm. and pathological and pe- people who are more entrenched 
in uh, their uh, illnesses um, are less likely because of their fragile ego states to come and seek therapy. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a stigma. It's stigmatizing, especially for kids. You know, if you're seeing a therapist, you, you, therefore you must be sick. And, of course, the insurance companies that pay for it, they increase the, uh, s the stigma by making the therapist diagnose them with a heavy diagnosis in order to be financially remunerated. And, um, but the real truth is, is that uh, healthy people are much more apt to call a therapist than, than uh, crazy people. I like that. Yeah, I'm healthier than I thought. <laughs> we, uh, you are inside the chat see, room. You seem healthy to me. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm good. Getting healthier by the minute listening to you. It's good. Thank you. <laughs> you are tuned into the chat room on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We are on with Samuel Newman, marriage and family counselor, right here in our own backyard of Irvine, California. We'll uh, provide you with information on how to get in touch with Sam if you've been waiting to make this call and you haven't gotten around to it. If you, should we take callers? Oh, right. That'd be great. If, there if is you some. want to call in and you have a question, any, any question for Sam, uh, give us a call at 949-824-5824-949-UCI-KUCI, and, uh, and he'll be here for the next 30 minutes answering your questions and ours. I will render an opinion, and um, hopefully it'll be in, in the ballpark. I like it. Do you have to like your patients? Well, I only like about 10%. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, everybody thinks they're in the ten percent. Right. <laughs> Just lie to us. No, no, it's it's really more than that. Uh, you know, it's more like eleven or twelve percent. But uh, <laughs> no, you, you you don't. No, and the truth is, I I actually like the majority of my patients. You don't have to like them. Okay. I mean, and that and by the way, that that's the um, difference between being a professional person with some experience and not. Yeah, I'm always amazed at. Oh, we have a caller. Go ahead. You can tell him what you're amazed by. You were actually, you just touched on something that I've been struggling with. You're talking about the difference between liking someone and mm -hmm. then working with them. Mm -hmm. It's, is it the difference between, so you accept your patients as in you bring them in, you don't judge them, you try to help them, yeah. but they're not someone you'd want to hang out with maybe. Well, I can't hang out with them because that would violate professional ethics, but uh, you know, oftentimes I don't want to, yeah, I wouldn't want to hang out with them necessarily. Um, I was trained, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to be trained under guys like Carl Rogers and Virginia Satir and some of the heavies back in the 70s, where the whole uh, client-centered approach to therapy began, uh, which is where you become an active listener and you uh, train yourself to hold a person in what's called unconditional positive regard. Right. Now, what is the... It it's a f sounds like it's a fine line between unconditional positive regard and hang out with you. <laughs> well, h hanging out is, uh, you know, something that you would do... Um, or wanting to, or, or uh, categorizing the person as someone you'd want to spend personal time with. Yeah. Is, well, it, is it... They overlap. Okay. But, but go ahead, ask the question. I guess the question is, can you still give someone unconditional positive regard and reject them as a um, 
as a personal friend outside of the therapy well, situation they can't be personal friends because then you're entering into a dual relationship right outside of the therapy situation i guess i guess uh -huh. i'm wondering people in general the idea of giving unconditional positive regard where is that line between doing that giving them that you know mm -hmm. but also saying my personal time is mine and you you don't meet the cut well let me just say this that carl rogers was on the only person in history that could actually give somebody unconditional positive regard but it's kind of a it's one of the it's one of my the skills in my little therapist bag that I have to call on but no, I, I don't really work in a strict Rogerian sense um, and uh, so I use the unconditional positive stuff you know the the reflective listening the active listening uh, mostly in the beginning of therapy to facilitate a, a therapeutic bond or a level of comfort or trust with the client. But then as we get to know each other, um, I'm apt to uh, actually give them feedback about how they're affecting me, you know, if they're being obnoxious or being stupid or, uh, you know, whatever. And of course, I'm going to handle that more diplomatically i'm going to use clinical terms but uh yes yeah. <laughs> let's see how he handles this do we have a call we do we have two callers uh the first is ryan ryan are you there yes go ryan go ahead um yeah i have a question regarding um therapies therapists and um what kind of stuff basically comes from your patients goes through you and to your therapist and do you have to ever take a step back and say, I can't do therapy today, I need therapy for myself, or are you only being a therapist when you're in a healthy state of mind? Is it after years of doing therapy on your own, or how does it um, translate between having patients and having a therapist? Do you have a therapist, or, you know, and what is that relationship? It's a damn good question. Can I say damn on, yes. on television? you may. Okay. <laughs> you can even say it on radio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, One more ther thing. Ther yeah? Oh, ther therapists uh, should be in therapy, not all the time, but at least some of the time, uh, for supervision over their caseload because, you know, you get stuck. You get stuck in what's known as a counter-transference. Uh, a transference is when the patient uh, brings in their relationship that they've had with their father, their mother, their, their Uncle Ted, whatever. Uh, and the counter-transference are the feelings that the uh, therapist starts to develop towards the client or patient because they remind them of something that bothers them. Uh, so it's always good to have supervision. Uh, but, um, you know, you, I think you asked something about do I have to be in a good mood or do I have to be healthy myself to do therapy? Uh, and if that were true, I'd probably be able to do therapy about five days out of the year. <laughs> Because with ten percent of your clients, I, I'm generally in some some state of you know uh, r relative ease or dis-ease, but uh, but I've over the years I've developed a, a professional uh, persona that that I can that I can ease into. Let me just say this, and my my I think my wife may be listening, and if you are, I love you deeply, Marla. <laughs> um, uh, that. Um, uh, I'm not nearly as good a person at home and at large as I am in my office. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Does that answer your question, Ryan? Or you yes, yes. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks. Uh, we, all <laughs> we also have Herbie. Herbie, do you have a question? Yeah, I got a problem. Okay. 
very big problem. It's nothing to do with this. But I'm a big fan of music and everything and originality. I'm a and musician. Therapy. Um, but there's a lot of good bands out there, but they don't really have the pizzazz. Yeah. And I'm having a problem with the beard thing. I think it's the biggest fashion trend I've seen since Moses. You don't like ZZ Top, I, I take it. I love ZZ Top, but, you know, those beards belong to them. No one has any originality, you know, like Susan the Benjis and, and Iggy Pop in the old days. They all get these beards nowadays. Iggy they look Pop. like they, they want to hang out with their parents. I think I, I think Herbie's gone on to a so he's, different topic. Herbie sounds like he's upset at what he mm. perceives as people jumping onto the bandwagon of the look of musicians. And yeah, that's definitely. I don't, not I a don't know, topic. Herbie. You you hit we'll a real chord. You hit a chord with me. But go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> different show, different time. Yeah, love to love to really go into it. But Could yeah. you give us some insight into? The ways women objectify men. It's interesting that you bring that up because when you say it, I feel like mm-hmm. that may be what's happening with some relationships of other people in my life. Is it unique the way they, you say romantic, mm-hmm. men usually do it in like you're a pair of boobs for yeah. having sex with. Right. What, what are some of the major ways that women do that romantically? Well, I, I think... Uh, you know, ever since the uh, the days of uh, you know the marauders, where where uh, you know city states would invade other city states back uh, you know two three thousand years ago, uh, women would find a strong man you know in order to protect them from being raped and pillaged you know in that situation. And today, a strong man is uh, you know a guy that has a, a big bank account and a, and a good job. And so women, uh, gee, I, I probably sound like, uh, you know, that, uh, you know, kind of chauvinistic here. But, but it, you know, it seems that w- uh, women are, are craving uh, security and stability, whereas men may be craving uh, sexual excitement and adventure. And by the way, that goes both ways, you know, the, the you know, there's many exceptions to that rule. So the objectification from women is coming more along those lines, you know, uh, around their fantasy needs, that this is the guy that's going to, um, you know, um, help me and re- remediate all of my emotional problems, perhaps, and so forth. And, um, and, and so they create a romantic object around that. And whenever you create an object in your mind and confuse it for the person, that's objectification. And beyond security, is it possible that some of these ideas they have about this, this person is to meet their own self-esteem needs? Like, I pump him up to be oh, this? Oh, yeah, I'm glad that... Thank you, because you just cued me on that issue. Uh, yeah, I think that women in general uh, draw more personal identification out of the status of their relationships. I think women are more relationship-oriented. I think I began with that one. And, uh, you know, for example, when women walk into a party setting, uh, they're more apt to make observations about who belongs to who and who's close to what and all of that. And men will walk into a a situation and see who's got the biggest boobs. I think you mentioned the boobs. And also, uh, who, who's the, uh, you know, the head guy, who's in, contr- who's in charge. They're more uh, into that vertical hi- power hierarchical kind of stuff. And so, yeah, w- women are, are more relationship-oriented. 
but um, I'm not sure I answered your question. I think that does make sense. You were mentioning that many women are secure. uh, Their needs, one of their biggest needs is security. Right. And oftentimes their romantic objectification will be based around security. Yeah. Like, this guy makes a lot of money. He's going to provide for me. He's going to do this. And he's a can-do guy that can do everything. Yeah. And then you take that need which maybe some women don't have and they have mm-hmm. a self-esteem need. Mm-hmm. If you come from a rich family, maybe mm-hmm. security's not your thing. Maybe it's self-esteem. Can I find a guy who's cool? Well, so they come up with an objectification about how, well, he's like, he's an artist and he's going to do all these great things. And then as it turns out, he doesn't even like painting. And then yeah, yeah. you find some things out about him and your whole thing crumbles. Well, you know, that whole thing you say about the rich family, um, there's a hierarchy of needs. I mean, and, and obviously the, the very first ladder on that hierarchy is, you know, have enough money to have a roof over your head and a pot to pee in and so forth. Uh, but as you make your way past that need, you know, when, when money is no longer a security issue, then psychologically people move on to the next needs and you know the need to be loved the need to be validated the need uh to have a free-flowing creative life which you know kind of sits toward the top and so the needs change you know as as we we go along and and evolve and get older I always wonder if people go into counseling looking for a third party to validate them. And so, you know, to say, you're right, look, I'm right, and this guy's <laughs> going to tell you I'm right. And <laughs> yeah. I wonder how often you get put in that position of, you know, wife saying, you know, here's my situation, tell him, tell him why he's wrong. And uh, get, yeah, getting get irritated that uh, that's not how counseling ever goes. I get that all the time. And uh, I get guys or men that, that come in and say, fix my wife, you know. She wants to go play mahjong with her friends, or she, you know, she, uh, she's no longer interested in watching football with me anymore, or uh, she won't get a job, or blah, blah, blah. And uh, the same is true. Women, women sometimes uh, have the expectation that, that you know, everyone is the, uh, you know, the um, uh, protagonist in their own story, so they, they have the expectation that you will mold their significant other around what they want or need. And I dispel that myth rather quickly. And as a result, lose many clients that way. (laughs) Because I'm I'm not about to, uh, you know, sculpture uh, anybody um, because somebody else needs them to to, to look that way. Yeah, yeah. I want to play the pivotal, therapeutic pivotal point between two people who can work out a dialogue and discover their own relationship. Right, right. Does it make sense that a lot of uh, relationship problems, or does it ring true, rather, for you that a lot of relationship problems come from power struggles to get their needs, to get one's needs met through the other person when mm-hmm. the other person doesn't want to? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think many uh, people that seek therapy or that are very uncomfortable or, are people these days are convinced that they they need the validation and that they need uh, they need somebody else to actually meet their needs, and, uh, and many times that's a failure for them to um, look within and discover their own resources and their own strengths, you know, their own assets, and um, you know, so um, you know, sometimes the 
sometimes the healthier an individual gets, uh, the, the less likely the relation, the, you know, the less chances the relationship has to survive. Sometimes the glue that holds the relationship together is what I like to jokingly refer to as interlocking pathology. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, I, I've encountered that more than 12 times. Sometimes yeah. interlocking can be fun, but, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you, you find people based on something, right? I mean, what, whatever draws you together is probably, you know, it can be perfume and pheromones, but underlying it is probably some similar psychology or whatever the lock is to your key of dysfunction is is and you know well perfume and pheromones you know g- get you uh three dates right <laughs> right but but after that but alcoholism is a lifetime right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a commitment it's, it's hard work there's um so so there's other types of um uh things that that people require of you there's other levels of um of attraction, their psychological levels of attraction, where um, uh, the uh, I'm, I'm thinking of um, the the marriage contract uh, that was written a long time ago by Helen Singer Kaplan, one of the most uh, important books that I ever read that helped me do su- uh, couples therapy, and and that is is that there's three levels at which people meet. There's the uh, the level of what I know about myself. And what I want you to know about me, and that's the that's the bullshit that you say uh, you know, while you're dating and having a glass of wine, a uh, can- candlelight, you know, the uh, embellished lies and so forth that you're telling about yourself. Uh, you know what you want the other person to know. Then there's the level of what I don't know, what I, what I know about myself, but I'd rather you wouldn't know. And then that comes out later on in the dating. But the most powerful attraction is the unconscious attraction where two people come together in a complementary joining because one person is very strong in one area and very weak in one area and the other person has complementary strengths and weaknesses and uh, so when those two people are pulled together by the psychological need and like for example you know a um, uh, uh, let's say that a little girl grows up with like a powerful mother or a powerful father that really overshadows and disempowers her and you would think that she would be attracted to some guy that would uh, let her run her own show or be kind of stand back and more passive but no she's attracted to a guy like that who's uh, overpowering and it's her psychological agenda because it's the it's the bonding pattern that she had as a child to try to change this strong uh, overpowering guy in, into somebody who she you know will support her and validate her and love her uh, so you know uh, a lot of times people get together for these unfinished needs that they had that they bring with them through childhood and adolescence and uh, you know, they just, uh, they, 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 don't, they never discover it. They never discover that, that they're doing that until they come in and talk to someone like me. Yeah. So we're, we're in Orange County in the year 2012 where every politician and star and movie 
movie singer is having an affair. What's the state of, and I assume you see a lot of this in your practice because it's, uh, I assume, sort of part of the bread and butter of uh, marriage therapy. Yeah. Um, what's the state of that? Do you feel like it's it's always been kind of a steady problem that's not going anywhere? Do you feel like it's, you know, kind of ebbs and flows with the times? Do you... Well, I think the state of that is California. <laughs> no, no. Southern California in particular. <laughs> in particular. Yeah. Um, you know, people... Uh, they, they, they become disappointed through that power struggle. They give up. And then uh, often an affair, an affair can mean so much. I, I think with men, it, and particularly younger men, uh, it, it's, uh, oh, I got married too quick, and I didn't sow my wild oats, and I don't believe in monogamy really anyway. Or, or you know, men, men's entitlement when they make a lot of money. Uh, we see it with politicians all the time, powerful men. Uh, feeling entitled to having various mistresses and and so forth and and I think that uh, you know when when women at least it used to be this way and I think it still is in 2012 uh, I, it's more serious when a woman has an affair it, it it means that there's something really missing that she's really missing some intimacy and some you know basic uh, connectiveness with with the person and so she's going outside to seek it and um, yeah it's the impetus that brings a lot of people into therapy and you know that it could be a it could be a, a, a deal breaker for a lot of people it's it's just pure and simple a deal breaker and for many other people it's like a wake-up call mm-hmm what percentage of marriages do you think come out of those God, percentage I'm sorry. Um, I'm asking. I'm talking statistics again. I remember he hates statistics. Never. Well, mind. they're Never just. Mind. I can make them up for you if you'd like, <laughs> yeah. or or I could try to remember some meaningless statistics I read. But that's okay. Uh, I'm just going to go from my uh, just yeah, anecdotally, anecdotally. Does it seem you know hopeless, or does it? I I um the 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 statistic that's popping up in my head right now, or the number is like fifty fifty. That's at this good. point, 50-50. I mean, that's what I do. That, that's, my job is to, uh, in couples counseling, is to take a tragedy, an infidelity, and expose it for what it is, for what was missing. Um, and it could be a time for value clarification, for discovery. And, um, you know, uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a powerful impetus for people to look longer and deeper into what what they've been doing and uh, so here's you know a, a recipe for for getting past uh, an affair or or multiple affairs or bilateral affairs is that people do a, an entire inventory on their relationship you know all the things that have kind of all the bad water under the bridge all you know and and where they've developed resentments and I, I do this whole process with couples and and I think I'm the only one I know that's actually doing it but then I don't know very many people you know because when I get through working I generally go surfing or play guitar um, but I can't get paid for either one of those things so I still do therapy but um, you know um, I have people uh, write down everything they remember, all the things that they're resentful about, all the things they feel hurt about, and then they confront each other with it, and they really square off. They look mm -hmm. at each other, 
and uh, you know they then it gives them an opportunity to kind of set new game rules, new boundaries, but it also gives them the opportunity to understand what's really happened in their relationship. You know, people kick things under the rug. Uh, you know, as uh, the famous movie director Busby Berkeley once said, too much reality is not what the people want. <laughs> That's why he had all those funny <laughs> women with the bathing suits jumping around. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, when people take a real clear good look at what's happened, then there is the opportunity for reconciliation, uh, acknowledgement, forgiveness, and they can, uh, you know, like a marathon runner, they can get they can get a second wind. Nice, I like that. Oh, thank you. I like ending on hopeful notes. That's nice. Is that a hopeful note? Uh, pretty okay. good, yeah. All right, that's as hopeful as I get. So that's what that's I pretty do. Good. <laughs> okay. Do you have a wrapping up question? I had a wrap up question. Okay. Has is it common for you to have a couple that seems like they're making some major progress in therapy sessions, but when they get out into the world and they have to deal with their friends, mm. it's hard. Question. It's hard for them to reconcile what they want and what their friends want them to have. Yeah. Hmm. Well, uh, a relationship is an organism. I, I look at a relationship like an organism. Uh, it's an organism that's built from, you know, three factors. There's the I factor, there's the you factor, and there's the us factor. And the integrity of that organism is, is sort of based on uh, the couple having a boundary uh, so that they don't allow in-laws and friends and the world at large to come into their relationship to such a great extent and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, deflected or or impugn it or um, uh, you know diminish it so they, they keep that boundary around themselves and sometimes the boundaries too thick where they don't allow the world at large to come in at all and that's what we call sexual or relationship addiction you know people mm. just going underground and you know being with each other um, and uh, at, at uh, to avoid dealing with uh, the externals but uh, yeah that that that's a factor a lot I, I do some good work in therapy I, I think that, that I've made some progress only for that couple to go out and and get undone by in-laws and and onlookers and 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 hookers and so forth <laughs> <laughs> I said that because it rhymed with onlookers I I like it it was clever <laughs> Hookers have done undone a lot of relationships out there, so that's, that's fair. World's oldest profession. It's true, and for, for a reason. Do you yeah, find it's even uh, when it comes to uh, men kind of wanting the woman to be a certain way so their friends kind of are impressed, and women wanting their man to be a certain way so her friends are impressed? That happens way too much. I mean... We wear each other, you've heard the term uh, arm candy, or, uh, you know, she, she's a status symbol for me so that I could go to the corporate dinners and, and impress people and uh, influence uh, people and so forth. And so, you know, if a relationship, there's, there's two principles, and this actually goes to union therapy, and we, it's another subject, we need another hour for it, but, you know, there's the inside and the outside of a person, and, and uh, the inside is known as the shadow, and the outside is known as the persona, and if a person or a relationship is overly personified, 
In other words, it's too out there for the public. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm window dressing so that everybody will like me. Uh, then there's not much dynamic, kinetic, romantic uh, force going on inside. It lacks, it's an impoverished inner life. And uh, sometimes there's too much inner life uh, in a uh, relationship uh, and not enough personification. And then you end up with Bonnie and Clyde, you know. <laughs> I, Fun I couple. Cl I Clyde was uh, actually uh, asexual, so not a good example. <laughs> I, I, I like Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> asexual. That's an, it's another whole topic. Anyway, we didn't even get to fetishes either. We got there's so much more. Well, to we talk spoke about. about fetishes before the uh, before know, the show. I know, but the we show didn't before the show. We didn't. We didn't. We didn't get there. It's not my strongest. Area. We're gonna have to have Sam back on. There's too much to talk about. I'd love to come back on. That'd be cool. How do how do people find you real quick if they. Uh, or do you want them to find you? Maybe you don't want to be found. No, I do want to be found. Um, I have a website. Thank you for asking. Um, SamNewmanTherapy.com is my website. Uh, I'm located in Irvine. Um, what is my address? 2222 Martin Street, uh, Irvine. I don't know the zip. But I'm right across from the uh, John Wayne Airport. And I'm also in San Diego. And uh, uh, people find me all kinds of ways these days. That's good. That's Word good. of mouth is probably the biggest, still the biggest uh, way that they find me. Hopefully this helps you. Hopefully this I helps. hope it does. <laughs> <laughs> you have been tuned into the chat room. Stay tuned for Andy Vasoyan coming up next on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We'll be right back here with you next Friday night, 5 o'clock. We'll see you then. Thanks for tuning in. Get out while I'm the master of balance With multiple talents I provide the landscape Maybe you provide the challenge I've been broken down and out And look at the sound and I'm drowning out I'm around the town and I'm roundabout And it's better than the kick in your freaking mouth These words